Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guests this week are Tina Muir and Zoe Rom, co-authors of the new book, Becoming a Sustainable Runner. And as we're going to talk about in this episode, we're going to talk about the book, but also about the concepts of sustainability as it relates to running. The sustainability of our training, the sustainability of our relationship with the sport, but also the sustainability factor of environmental activism and how that relates to us as runners. And it's all connected. I absolutely loved having this conversation with these incredible women. If you haven't had a chance to pre-order the book, you should. It comes out on Tuesday, August 15th. And until then, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Zoe and Tina, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. So for people who are unfamiliar with either of you, both of you, Tina, you've been a guest on the show, but Zoe, you are a first time guest. Go ahead and let's start with you. Zoe, go ahead and tell us about yourself. My first question to all my guests, and you are no exception, is I always want to know, how did you become a runner? And then tell us a bit more about yourself. Yeah, um, I became a runner via the maybe not super popular New Year's resolution route, (laughs) resolve to (laughs) run after um, graduating from high school volleyball as a way of just like staying active um, and identified as a jogger for many, many years before falling fully off the deep end and getting into ultra running. Um, But I am now editor-in-chief at Trail Runner Magazine, managing editor at Women's Running and a contributing editor at Outside Run. Well, for me personally, thank you for your professional work that you do because I read those sites all the time. I am a, I'm a huge fan of the outside incorporated <laughs> publication family. So just as a me to you, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and Tina, you are a returning guest on the show. If people are not familiar with you or your episode from season two, go ahead and reintroduce yourself. Yeah, so uh, my name is Tina Muir. I would have mentioned in the last time around that I became a runner I guess on accident I told the story as I do many times of hiding in the bathrooms for the tryouts for my cross-country team in school because I didn't want to do it I still don't know why that was I suspect it was something to do with not feeling like it was a cool thing to do Uh, for many years actually I I would do my runs at like 7 p.m at night in the dark because I didn't want my friends to see me in running clothes which now is the most hilarious thing as I live in running clothes and have a business around doing that. Um, But yeah, and then I somehow ended up on the team, have no memory of how that happened. Um, So that's how I started running. And um, yeah, so now I am uh, the founder of Running For Real. I have a podcast, a community, um, also very as, as we're about to talk about, very passionate in sustainability, work a lot with the major marathons and other races to bring their sustainability initiatives to life and draw attention to what they're doing. Um, and I guess the last thing I am also known for is kind of the the girl who got her period back in back in 2017 was one of the first people to talk about amenorrhea. Um, and uh, yeah, so those are some things I think attached to, to my name. <laughs> So you have joined forces and written a book, which we are here to talk about today, and I'm so excited about it. It's called Becoming a Sustainable Runner, 
that comes out August 18th. So where did this idea come from? I don't know who had the, the germinating type of, you know, the seed or who wants to go first on this, but where did the idea for the book come from? Yeah, I can definitely speak to this piece. And it was, um, it's something that had been on my mind for a while. Uh, when we came, when, you know, the, the title of the book, Becoming a Sustainable Runner, uh, there's many reasons for that. Becoming, because even Zoe and I are not, we haven't reached the destination. Um, and so I wanted to write a book about uh, the things that I had learned about my own running journey in terms of, as I mentioned, I, I, uh, my battle, if you want to call it that, with amenorrhea, where I had essentially burned out and quit the sport um, because my health was not good. Mentally, I was completely burned out. And so I knew I wanted to speak to that piece of running in that I had recognized that running did not have to be about head down, grit your teeth, uh, stare at the floor and chase that BQ, as I felt many runners were doing and as I was doing, but at maybe a higher level as an elite athlete. Um, and then I also always had this passion about sustainability and I had thought about, uh, you know, doing something about about it for the everyday person because there was so much out there that was very environmentally felt very aggressive for the average person. And it's one thing for Zoe and I to do these things, but for most people, they just just shut down because it's too overwhelming. It's too terrifying. Um, and so I had this idea, I was in talks with a publisher, but I knew I wanted to do it with someone else. And Zoe and I had become connected a few months before. Uh, and I just sensed this really good energy from her. We, we, we share the story in the book about uh, we first connected because of our love of composting uh, and meeting online over a tweet. Um, and so I called her up and I was like, would you like to write a book with me? And Zoe, I think you answered like in record time of like, absolutely, yes, let's do it. And I also remember Zoe, you had said, um, I don't know if I've mentioned this in any of our other chats, Zoe had written somewhere that she wanted to write a book that was on her like bucket list. And so that was in my mind as well. I love helping people achieve their bucket list items. Um, and so then, yeah, we, we went to the publisher and it took off from there. Zoe, is that true? Where you're like, oh yes, finally, I do want to write a book, or is is Tina misremembering that? Oh no, that's that's uh, spot on. I think I also, I mean, I've been a professional writer my entire career. I've never done anything else. Um, so I've, it, it, I, it, yes, it was on my bucket list, but I also kind of just assumed it would happen, just because I've been uh, focusing on generating a body of work that would hopefully one day lead to a longer format of writing. And I think it was a matter of time and like where, like what would the situation that would lead to my first book be? And I, I don't think it'll be my last. I already have some other ideas for another one. And I think it was just mostly about getting to know the person that would be my co-author to make sure that we were aligned to an extent and also making sure that she would be someone who would push back against my ideas that needed that resistance, someone that would challenge me and push me to be better. So I really enjoyed that part of the collaborative writing process. Mm. I love this, Tina, what you said about, you know, the way the book is titled Becoming, not, not it's not a how-to, how to become a sustainable runner. 10 steps to being a, becoming a sustainable runner, right? It is, it is that it's about that journey. And obviously a lot of what I talk about in this more kind of existential philosophical way that running is this lifelong journey that helps shape us and we help shape it. But um, I mean, Zoe, is there anything that you want to say about, about, you know, choosing 
how to that kind of focus for the book? Yeah, we wanted it to be a jumping off point, not a destination. We wanted it to be something that started conversations, not that ended them. And we're (laughs) trying to be really vulnerable and candid about our really imperfect journeys in this realm as well. I struggle daily with feeling like I am not enough, like I am not doing enough. I am not smart enough. I'm not the right person to bring this message to the forefront And we wanted to, instead of like shying away from that, we wanted to lean into that tension and invite other people who likely feel the same way. Um, And though my background is in environmental journalism, I, again, still struggle with like, am I the right person to bring this message to the running community? And we wanted to just invite people in where they're at to join us on this journey rather than putting forth what would inaccurately be a a perfect checklist of like, you know, here's how you just, here's how you achieve this. Here's how you self-optimize. Here's how you get to where you want to go. We wanted to offer a framework rather than a checklist. That, that messiness, I really appreciate that. I, I mean, I, I think we all in one or more areas of our life fall into that, you know, like, am I, Am I enough to be this person to other people? Am I am I enough in this way to, to that other people or that my actions or my outlook will be accepted or make a difference or you know because I I think so often in kind of other a lot of areas of life sometimes in running specifically like if you haven't run certain times or had certain credentials or in different forms of activism if you don't live in a very specific way have a very specific kind of background we are looked at as these, like the messenger is, we're discounted, right? Because we're not the perfect messenger. Um, and it can be very uncomfortable and personally challenging to be like, screw it. Like I, I'm, I am enough. I, I am enough to deliver this message, to do this work, to be this kind of person. I don't know, Tina, if you want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think one example that comes to mind from the book that I don't think is one that people will really think of but relates to what you were saying there is uh, we talked about mentorship in the book and being a mentor to others and when people think of mentors firstly we probably think of like stuffy offices with CEOs you know inviting these young people into their office to to tell them about the world but secondly within running we might think of someone like a Zoe or I to be like oh well they can be a mentor but we make the case in the book that actually even if you've only been running for a year you know so much that a brand new runner does not know. And so any of us can be mentors, even if you've only been running a few months, you have picked up a few things along the way that could teach people, could help people, could be the difference between someone trying running for the first time and reaching that difficult point or reaching that really bad run where they thought it was going to be great. I'm going out for a run and I love it now and it isn't great. And they're like, oh, maybe I'm not meant for this. You could be the difference between that person saying, I'm not meant for this. And that person saying, oh, okay, that was a bad day. I'm going to try again. And so we talked to that piece, but also, you know, Zoe mentioned her, you know, feeling not enoughness and we all have that feeling. But I I think within the book and it just in general, especially about around environmental topics, but in running too, someone like hear Zoe saying that or hear me saying that and think, are you serious? Like you're the one that is doing all the stuff. You're my benchmark. Um, But actually, not only do we feel it, but I guarantee you, everyone listening to this, someone in your life looks at you and thinks, 
wow, if I could just do what they did, if I could just run like them, or if I could just motivate myself to go out the door in the mornings, I wish I could do that. And so we all feel it, but we also all are the example for someone else. And so we we hopefully got across the message that, um, yes, we are all on this becoming journey, not um, any, not any one of us has reached the end point. And even if you think you have reached the end point, which Zoe or I might ha- might have in any of these areas, you probably haven't. And there's some of these lessons that we talked about in the book that in five years, we may stumble down that same hole we just wrote about. So it's called becoming for a reason. And I th- hopefully that speaks to the listeners when, and the readers when it comes up. So obviously the the title of the book also talking about sustainable sustainability is has multiple meanings, right? So when we traditionally talk about the sustainability of your running in a training context, we're talking about your ability to train in a way that's appropriate for you at your level and with your goals that you can basically do it for a long, long time. That running is an additive part of your life, that it's enjoyable, that you're not driving yourself into the ground or burning yourself out or using running as a, let's say like a maladaptive coping skill. So let's start there and talk about, you know, for me, my mission as a, a running educator is kind of what I call myself these days, is to basically help people who would otherwise leave the sport because of things that are easily fixable or could be changeable to keep them in, right? So for a lot of new runners, that's like the first time they get shin splints or the first time, teeny, like you said, they had that bad run or, you know, to keep them in. And then for people running for a while to keep them in because we're preventing them from burning out. We're preventing them from training in an unsustainable way. So when we talk about the sustainability of training in that purely like is your running sustainable? What are we talking about when we say that? Zoe, if you want to take this one. Something that I really love about the concept of sustainability is that it presumes a really long-term outlook. And I think that that is a radical act of self-belief, right? To believe that your horizon and your potential exists far out there and it is not something that exists, you know, this year, this season, this week, today. And I think that a lot of times people will handicap themselves and not get vulnerable and shorten their running timeline. And we really wanted to challenge folks to fall in love with this thing that we love so much and to radically reimagine what that timeline can look like for them and to really imagine what it would look like to fuel and sustain this for a lifetime beyond a season, beyond, you know, beyond a BQ, beyond one goal race, beyond whatever PR um, matters to them right now. We wanted to challenge folks to see what it looks like to really, really extend the shelf life of this of this thing that means so much to, to us and presumably so much to them as well. Tina, I know you've gone through periods with your own journey and your own running career of sustainable versus unsustainable. And we did talk about this at depth in our previous episode about your changing relate your as in the the you know one's changing relationship mm. with running. Um, but kind of if we had to to take some key takeaways about or if this one and I hate to like take your entire book and distill it down into like if you had one bullet point, but. You know, when it comes about sustainability, like what are we talking about here? Is it managing training load? Is it mindset? Is it like what are what are the things when you think top of mind what sustainable uh, running actually means? Like what does that mean to you? Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, we go through many phases of life. We go through many periods where we're motivated by different things. We might, and I've done this myself, as you mentioned, gone through periods where I've been very, very driven and determined to reach a goal and and commit and do everything I could. I've also gone through periods where I've barely done anything. Um, And so I think for me, the biggest thing that comes to mind for sustainable running is finding ways to keep that joy in there. I tried very hard towards the end of my elite career to kind of be like, who needs joy when you've got goals? Um, Very like serious and like not uh, allowing for that and thinking like, I'll have fun later when I've accomplished these things. Um, but that that wasn't sustainable. And so we we tried to give ways within the book to keep it fresh, even if you are running from your house every single day, running the same loop every single day, and it's starting to get stale. Here are some things we can do. Um, but I think the it's someone one of my friends said to me the other day she sent me this quote that said uh, we spend the first half of our life trying to act like a grown-up learn how to grow up and learn how to um, you know take our lives more seriously and then we spend the spec- second half of our life trying to be a child or we should do um, like how finding ways to be ch- more childlike and I love that phrase and I think that is while I hope I at um, 34 I'm not uh, halfway through my life yet um, I I do like that approach of like sustainable running means finding ways to keep it fun. So that might mean like I did a 50 mile ultra and then uh, a month later I jumped in a one mile. And was that intimidating for my body? Absolutely. But it was like that letting go of like, oh, that'll be a bit fun to, to do something different. So finding ways to keep the silliness in there, the childlike element of it, that to me is what comes to mind with sustainable running and your body will let you know of the rest. I think so often with that, you know, a lot of people are afraid that if I can't do it perfectly, it's not worth doing at all, right? I know if I can't train perfectly for this race, if I can't choose the perfect course, if I can't have the perfect weather, like what's the point? Not everybody, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, yes, yeah, screw it. Let's have some fun. Who cares, right? Sure. Okay. I slept in. It's 95 degrees outside. Bring extra water, you know, (laughs) but there are some people who, who don't have that relationship with running. Um, Zoe, do you have any thoughts about that and and how you've seen that in in your career as a journalist and as a runner? Yeah, for sure. I think something that's really interesting on this point is there is a a significant body of research that shows that particularly folks who identify as women struggle with this. We are nurtured um, to be perception managers, to manage how we're perceived by other people, to really try to control how we're seen and to really try to like have that external facing like sort of facade of perfection in how we show up in our personal lives, professional lives and running lives. And I definitely struggle with this. I think something that's really been pushing me in the process of getting this book out into the world is it is uh, it is an imperfect object. <laughs> and I struggle with that. Um, it, it's hard to not to not be able to like go back and edit and tweak and like make changes and to have to just like sit with this tension of like having given something my best and accepting that I am a flawed human who has imperfect works uh, with their name on it. And I think that (laughs) so often we use this like false idea of perfection to prevent ourselves from getting vulnerable and from trying things, particularly as adults. There are so many folks who would rather never start something than to start it and be imperfect at it. And so I always encourage folks to find what feels hard to them. If, um, you know, if like some folks, like, and this is only something you can cultivate with 
self-awareness. If you're someone who struggles with perfectionism, um, I'd get really curious about it, what, what it would look like to embrace imperfect training. If you're someone who's like really dialed on the imperfect and maybe you could hold yourself to a higher standard and you know this through self-awareness like that, I would be really curious about that and lean into that version of what is hard and challenging for you. But I think, again, most folks, we struggle with that perfectionism. We struggle with perception management and especially in today's world where there is so much like self-surveillance, there's so much surveillance through social media, it can be really challenging to let go of like having this quote unquote picture perfect sort of version of running, version of life, version of um, environmental activism. And I think that we can all get a little curious about what it would look like for us to really, really dig into the things that we love and let go of perfection. And I think a lot of runners, I mean, for me, the magic of running is that deeper level, that next, that that internal exploration of who am I as a person? And I think a lot of people have no problem hammering workouts, right? We say like, get uncomfortable, be, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And they're like, yeah, I can get uncomfortable all day in a tempo. I can get all com- comfortable all day in a race, right? But then we ask them to get uncomfortable emotionally, psychologically, when it comes to exploring patterns and beliefs and and thought systems and behaviors and like all these things and they're like oh nope that that's not what i meant that's not the kind of uncomfortable i like to be but i i personally feel like that's where the growth if you've been looking for real growth like that's where it's going to happen and it's going to be messy and it's going to suck sometimes but it is worth it i feel it uh tina if you have any uh reflections on something like that yeah i mean i think i'm i'm going through this right now i um i'm so I, I, I ran professionally. I was able to do 90 to 100 miles a week every week in my training. And um, now I am in, entering into this world of ultra running. And I recently found out in my race coming that um, Courtney DeWalter, Camille Heron are both going to be in the same race as me. And so that pushes my competitive button of like, okay, I'm not going to finish first or second. I'm not going to break take that day. But how close, how close can I possibly get to them? However, I, so I sent myself what I thought was the easy goal of running 70 miles a week. I have not hit it yet. I don't know if I will because I've, I just, I have two kids. We have this book coming out. Um, I have my business. I just, the time management is, is so testing in that there's that part of me that wants to do the best that I can for this training and knows what that used to look like and is okay with it not being there, but wants it to be maybe one level down and I'm not even reaching that. And so learning to be okay with, you know what? I missed two runs over the weekend. Oh, well, I can't do any, I can't do anything about that. And so um, I've been going through that myself going into this race and trying to figure out like, yeah, what is, is, is imperfect? Absolutely. But um, is it, uh, am I okay in that uncomfortable space enough to say, you know what, I'm going to stand on that start line and know I didn't give my very best, but in a way I did because I did the best with the situation I had. So I'm working with that. And I think many of your listeners are probably in the same boat in that, you know, elite runners can say, oh, I did all these things in a week and you need to be doing an hour of strength training a day and you need to be foam rolling for 45 minutes a day. And the average person is looking at their schedule and thinking, where could I possibly get that time from? Um, and recognizing that it's okay if you don't manage to model the elite runner lifestyle. And Zoe and I talked about this concept in the book of like, even if you see someone who's training 
is working, you know, let's say at your level, that doesn't necessarily mean it's best for you. So um, many versions of that I'm going through right now. <laughs> so obviously a huge part of the book, well, one part of, of the book, not a huge part, but a huge part of the book is this kind of thread and, and tie to sustainability. We talk about environmental consciousness and, and climate change and the climate emergency and, um, you know, taking that thread of sustainability and I'm seeing it, right? How can we do this for the rest of our, how can we run for the rest of our lives in a way that feeds us and nourishes us? How can we treat our planet with that same respect and feed and nourish it rather than drive it into the ground, right? So the sustainability kind of on all fronts. Obviously, you know, um, environmental journalism, Zoe has been your career. And I know, Tina, that's definitely a huge part of what you do now. Zoe, I want to kind of ask you about what you've seen in your career about how the, I want to say how the conversation, how the tone around climate activism um, environmental justice has changed in the time that you've been writing about it. Um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the biggest shift we've seen is a more all-encompassing idea of environmental justice beyond just like environmental, like a more constrained, narrow vision of what environmental action can look like, right? Like instead of getting beyond riding your bike to work and recycling, there's been a much more nuanced conversation around how issues of climate justice tie into issues of economic justice, of uh, gender parity, of um, reproductive justice, of um, all sorts of these justices, and you can't have one without the other. And I think that I really like that more um, that really challenging, all-encompassing framework because evidence shows that it, it is the most accurate kind of vision of how we can really achieve um, what we need to achieve here to keep our planet livable and able for all folks to thrive. Um, but I think that it's also a hugely, hugely, hugely challenging framework, right? Like our little amazing but very human brains aren't totally wired to see the big picture in these ways. That's a big challenge for us to have this really long-term view and to understand um, kind of this interesting and challenging overlap of individual action and collective action and we need both in order to get to where we're going so i've been equally challenged and buoyed by this more nuanced and holistic understanding of environmental justice to embrace um a lot of other concepts of justice tina when somebody says to you, and I'm sure that you've gotten messages or comments like this, because I know I have when I talk about things that aren't technically running related, but do as I feel fall into that scope of like human rights and who we are as people and why it matters. But what do you say when somebody says, I don't care about any of this. I just want you to talk about running. I don't see how these two things are related. I've never, ever had anyone say that to me. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yes, it is oh, a very good. common Yay, thing. That makes me so happy. I, I believe faith in humanity is restored. <laughs> no, I wish I could say that was the case. Um, yeah, I, um, I really, I got a lot of that a few years ago when I was um, first starting to talk about these things, like stay in your lane. I don't want to hear about this. Let's, uh, Zoe and I, a common one we get is keep politics out of running, to which Zoe says it much more eloquently than I do, but um, said something to the like of like running is inherently political. Um, 
you know, the fact that you can go out there and not think running is political speaks to your privilege, speaks to the opportunities that you have. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, those of us who identify as women going out on a run, uh, we've all had that experience of feeling unsafe and like, you know, having that seeing a man across the street and being convinced that they're out to get you like that in itself you can say running isn't political, but the fact that we feel that way and uh, a, a man might not feel that way out running, that in itself is a political thing that you could talk about. So I've definitely had a lot of those. And at first it was quite hard when I had people who had been with me since 2012 saying to me, I've been with you since the very beginning. I've listened to everything you've done. I've shared everything you've done. And now you're talking about all this stuff and I don't want to hear it. So goodbye forever. Um, and that was hard because I had to really confront the fact that I was choosing to speak up, but also I was I was going to pay the price for it because those people were no longer loyal audience members anymore. Um, but again, as we mentioned, like everything is political, everything about running is um you know, the fact that we can even go out there and do it at all. Um, it speaks to where we're from. Uh, it speaks to our gender. It speaks to our ability level. It like is inherently tied to everything. So I really feel like you should get Zoe to explain it better than I do because she just does it beautifully. Um, but yeah, it's been tough. Well, and I have to say, I really, I really hate that we, I, and this is kind of nitpicky for me. I feel like the, even the word political is now a polarized term. Like for me, when I think about these issues, it's just, it's that they're all connected. They're all related to each other, right? The issues of safety and gender identity. And I mean, even going so far as to say the way that the climate is changing and making certain areas of the country, you know, uninhabitable and unraceable and our beautiful areas of where we typically do spend time outdoors are changing and getting damaged. Like, you know, that that we, our community can choose to ostracize certain people because of, you know, who they are, what they believe. Like, that's not necessarily political for me. That's just like, it all is connected. But that's my take on it. So I don't know, Zoe, how you respond to people who who bring that st sort of thing up. Yeah, um, I feel like you can gauge how privileged some someone is by how apolitical they claim to be. Um, because for a lot of us, we don't have the ability to ignore politics. Like our access to uh, open spaces, to healthcare, to all the things that allow us to run, um, those things are like presupposed by our ability to engage in politics. And like, yes, politics definitely needs a rebrand. I think we all feel a little <laughs> bit icky even just saying that word. But I think there's like a misunderstanding of like, okay, there's sort of like how maybe like we culturally perceive politics in terms of like the presidential race and like really bad political coverage versus like politics as the system through which policy is established. I think we all need to get a lot more curious about policy and maybe disengage from the other type of like po quote unquote politics. Um, and I think that we all have to get a lot more comfortable engaging in policy because that's one of our primary levers uh, of power through which we can actually impact um, climate access justice today. Um, and I think that it is an uncomfortable place for a lot of folks, right? Like, I think a lot of people really kind of innately have that, like, human-to-human -human understanding of what these issues look like. And then zooming out can kind of get you out of your comfort zone. And engaging in policy can get you out of your comfort zone because those sort of, like, arenas of power have been gatekept by folks who are interested in preserving the status quo. 
And I think that I would just push everyone to get a little bit curious about what quote unquote politics looks like for them, because for a lot of us, it looks like getting engaged on the local level. For a lot of us, it looks like having one on one conversations uh, with other folks to express like why we have these deep seated beliefs, what our values are and how we can enact policy to help advance uh, the causes of those values in our world. Is it saying all politics are local? You know, yeah, that and I think that that can help people really understand what we mean when we say like the things are political. And I um, yes. So going off of that, <laughs> thinking about, well, if we focus on I want to say these kind of larger these larger machines that create policy, the, the the world in which we inhabit, where as individuals, most of us feel like these little tiny ants kind of being loomed over by these behemoth, you know, machines that you know, control a lot of how our world works and the things that do or do not happen. I think this is one of the the things that I personally struggle most, most with when it comes to trying to create a, a world that is not going to end up on fire, uh, more so than it already is, as, is the, as the decades pass, is that it feels like as an individual, my individual actions are like throwing a stone at a bullet train when it comes to the way that a lot of the really larger policy actions and the way that different governments and different large corporations are the ones dictating or creating a lot of the environment in which we now live. And I don't know uh, how you kind of found this through your research in the book, but um, I can't imagine that how I feel is, is uh, I'm alone in this. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, poignant point, right? Like those that feeling is very real. And I would just push folks to um, not let that feeling dictate their action because we need both individual action and collective systemic action as well. While yes, maybe you recycling one bottle today doesn't achieve anything and to believe that it does is not particularly helpful. Um, disengaging completely because you feel impotent is even worse, I would argue. Um, so I would again, encourage you to act as an individual to change systems and to help hold these larger sort of entities like the government and corporations accountable. And we do have that power as individuals, right? The government does answer to us. Um, we do have some ability as consumers to hold uh, larger corporations accountable. We do have some ability to act as individuals all together. And I think that anytime I start to feel impotent or disconnected, I get really curious about where that feeling is coming from, because typically it's coming from, again, someone in power who has a vested interest in preserving the status quo. So I would f continue to encourage folks to get uncomfortable and to be curious about those feelings that make them feel like they can't hold, you know, they can't hold folks accountable. They don't have power um, because we we truly do. And it's a very nuanced issue. And I think that anyone who's trying to sell an either or solution is, um, is, is trying to sell you something essentially. And we need both. We need to attack this from every angle possible. And that I think involves us all acting not from a place of trying to appease our own emotions, but to uh, really lean into that love of our fellow fellow human and to get curious about what solutions we have the most ability to affect change on today. Something I reflect on occasionally is the sustainability and, and I mean this in kind of like the environmental way like you know sustainable and um, not creating excess waste and being conscious of the of the resources that we consume. 
Sometimes, though, it can be hard as a runner when you are engaged in the regular runner discourse and you have a wall of shoes and looking at my wall of shoes behind me, right, (laughs) made of plastics and synthetic materials. And I buy a new pair probably more often than I should, right? Single use gels. You know, we talk about races, large races that put on, you know, these events that have thousands and thousands of pounds of of waste that's created from them. Um, Is this something where am I... If somebody's gonna be like, she's taking this way out of proportion. This is nothing compared to what XYZ is doing. Or is there opportunity for change here? Is it is it going to be beneficial for us as individuals to look at the way we consume certain things as runners in the running community? And Tina, if you want to take this one. Yeah, I think uh, this is a really good point to bring up because that that is exactly it. Like we we do need to address our consumerism and we have to keep in mind that these big corporations that we've been talking about, the people who do hold the power, have made it incredibly easy for us to continue, as Zoe said, with the status quo. I mean, Amazon with their one click, that means one moment of weakness and you have something on the way to you. One moment where emotionally you're feeling a bit Uh, down about something maybe you're worried you have an injury and a new pair of shoes is going to maybe tie that off it preys on that and so I want to start by recognizing that Um, and I mentioned I've been doing a lot of work with uh, you know Chicago Marathon with the New York Marathon with Peachtree these huge races that have huge impacts like Chicago using one and a half million cups during the marathon Um, however they are starting to listen they are paying attention chicago in particular but all of the races are starting to be interested in um, what they can do to lessen their impact and so i want to just give an example that works its way up that can show how everyday runners like you or any of your listeners can then have an impact okay so you take a local 5k you take one an event in your area that has I don't know, 300 to 500 people that turn up. If you can email uh, what Zoe was saying about taking action, which will reduce that anxiety that we all feel inside of like, are we doomed? Um, By taking an action of some kind that will lessen that anxiety slightly. So if you have the confidence, maybe not to call up your senator, but you have the confidence to email that race director and say, hey, um, I don't really need another T-shirt. Is there any way, can you add an opt-out section for your race next year? So you've emailed that race director and let's say they get 20 of these emails that say, please, you know, I don't need a shirt. So next year they might um, be like, okay, well, sustainability is becoming a thing that people are asking me about a a, a lot about. So then where will they go? They will look up the chain to other races. What are they doing? They will maybe attend a a seminar or a webinar that maybe the Chicago Marathon is putting on in how to reduce your impact, how to make your race more sustainable. They might, um, you know, make some changes to their races. And so then that scales its way up. So then now Chicago or whatever big race is getting more requests. Okay, how do the little races change their races so they're more sustainable? And so then they start putting on more like this, which increases the awareness. So your one little action to your local race might feel like nothing, but you didn't need that extra t-shirt and that in itself could be enough to keep building up. Um, And it kind of brings the point of, um, uh, you know, you're planting these seeds in your head of what can I do as an individual and your individual actions will do nothing to the global emissions, but 
they will begin to make the conversations happen. And we know this because brands are starting to listen. We're seeing all over the place, sustainably made, eco-friendly. And when they're using these words, they're using them because people are asking about it. So the more we keep asking, and you can do that with every your sphere of influence, maybe it's emailing your favorite brand and saying, I really love your products, but I'm wondering when you're gonna offer um, an option that doesn't contain any synthetic materials. Your actions, as little as they are, might compile enough to where they start, those big people in power start to pay attention. I think one of the kind of barriers to this is, well, one, that kind of like don't rock the boat, right? Because some people mm -hmm. are like, I love getting a race t-shirt. And be like, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying you can't have t-shirts, right? Um, but I think it's more about the, when things are new or different, they can feel very scary for some people. And I know the rise or popularity of cupless races, right? Where you kind of, you bring your own cup or your own drinking vessel. They don't actually have cups. They have water, but they don't have cups available to you at aid stations. People are like, well, that's going to slow me down, right? You know, and then it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe you need to then rethink your hydration strategy if you don't want to be slowing down for water. Maybe you should bring a bigger bottle, right? Maybe you should have, you know, it's not necessarily on on each of us as individuals to make sure that every other individual is provided with the optimum conditions for the thing that they're trying to do. Um, and I think some people struggle with this more than most because some of us are conditioned to be people pleasers, right? Like, yes, okay, of course, I just wanna make you happy. But I also think this ties into the the larger kind of, um, you know, I would say like barrier to, to activation, right? Where it's like, somebody's like, well, oh, I don't wanna be the person who, upsets other people by suggesting this, even if it is something that I find important. Yeah, I think mm. that my answer to that is that I deeply, deeply understand that. I am a people pleaser to my core and my sort of growth edge in the world is making sure that I don't prioritize some folks comfort over the ability for other people to live and thrive on this planet. I think that so many of these issues, human rights, um, you know, gender parity, uh, climate justice, reproductive justice, a lot of the reasons that these conversations can get backburnered is because otherwise well-intentioned people are conditioned to prioritize the comfort and happiness and status quo of others um, above even our own human dignity. And so I think that getting more comfortable saying like, you know what? No, like I can't stand in my integrity if I don't um, take this opportunity to bring people into this conversation, to give others and challenge others to um, lean into their heart and to understand that like in order for us to have the sort of world where every person can thrive that will necessitate the discomfort of some people and that's that's good and fine right like we're runners we love getting like where's that you know suddenly we're uncomfortable getting uncomfortable when it comes to like use it not using a cup but like you know you love doing a threshold workout like this is your new growth <laughs> edge um runners love to grind runners love to suffer and there will ne necessarily be some amount of sacrifice and discomfort involved with achieving justice uh, but beyond that sacrifice, there will also be more connection. There will be deeper, richer community. There will be truer relationships and friendships. And I think that continuing to focus not on the sacrifice and the hardship and the discomfort that's involved, but on the ability to stand in authenticity and the ability to stand in our integrity and connect as humans is even deeper and richer than that discomfort that we have to embrace along the way. 
I want to talk about the community aspect aspect as it relates to the literally the changing climate. And I think at this point, you know, where I see it, that even like this summer is a great example, right? We have the entire South is hotter than it's ever been. Canada's on fire. Um, you know, that if we, I always try to fe- try to find a way where it's like, look, you know, not everybody's going to respond to the same idea presented in the same way. And so sometimes when I'm presenting something to runners, I like to get them in as like a, well, here's why you should care because it's going to directly affect your running. And here's why I think runners for no other reason, if this is what gets them in the door, awesome, welcome. Um, The reason that we should care about this is because the way that climate is changing is going to make our sport, most of which is performed outdoors year round, undoable is going to be dangerous to run outside. Races are gonna get hotter, even though shoulder season races, like there are going to be places where you were able to run outside in certain areas, which are no longer safe for you to do so for whatever reason. Um, let, let's talk about that for a little bit. Cause I think that that could be easier for people to concretely understand because they see it happening or they're experiencing themselves rather than some sort of like kind of nebulous like you know activism as you know human rights so let's talk about Mm -hmm. hey guess what the world is literally changing for you as a runner and it's not changing in the way we necessarily want it to i don't know who wants to take this one yeah i um i think this has become very apparent with the air quality thing right because runners are like oh wait i need to breathe in air to be able to complete my activity and when much of the us was was dealing with and is still dealing with wildfire smoke that meant you could not run for days on end um, or if you did you were literally putting particles into your lungs that won't come out um, and so i think you're right that it does require it to be in your face and it's it's sad that you know we are in a world where we're so overstimulated and so desensitized to seeing human suffering that we tend to see like a flooding or a tsunami or a drought or something. We see people suffering and we say, oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. And then we're like, anyway, what's for lunch? Because um, you just, you can't connect with that. Um, and it and it makes climate change feel so existential. And so in the future, like I can't be dealing with this conversation when I've got to decide um, you know, taxis, my taxes are due tomorrow and I, I haven't even started them. So I'm not even going to think about that. I don't have the brain space for that right now. Um, but it's starting to get to the point where we're actually seeing these things coming into our face, regardless of where you are. And while, you know, um, people can build a wall around their house, they can put their house on a anti-flooding I don't know, platform, they can prepare in whatever way to try and privilege or spend their way out of this climate crisis. You cannot do anything about stepping outside and breathing clean air. Like that is for many runners going to be the thing that's going to make them be like, oh, wow, either I'm going to be running on the treadmill every day uh, because as you said, it's either too hot or uh, the air is unsafe or this is a this is the reminder that it is here. And eat, no matter where you live, you if you live in the US, you cannot move away from wildfire smoke. That could be anywhere. And so I think this is a good time for us to take momentum and say, as we've been talking about in this conversation, this is not you have to do some brash thing, but starting to take your fingers out of your ears and confront that uncomfortable truth that 
this is here now and while we don't it, the things don't look good for the future it doesn't look like we're coming together we as runners if we are one thing we are stubborn and we are determined and we will find a way through so as we've talked about a lot in this conversation making changes locally uh gathering locally i mean i talk a lot about plogging picking up trash while running that is something that doesn't make any change in emissions but it could be getting people in your area to start thinking and being conscious and opening their eyes and, uh, you know, taking off that, um, la, 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 I don't want to hear this uh, kind of blinders that they've been going on to actually work together as a community to um, start to have these conversations. And I don't think it's particularly useful or interesting to judge humans for being human, right? Like our brains are not entirely set up to fully understand and connect to large systems like climate change. Like that's a big challenge for us. And I think that one of the, you know, kind of our approach in this book illustrates that we wanted to tug on people's heartstrings and a really potent way to do that is through running this thing that we really love, that we really connect with on a personal level, and then to activate them beyond the framework of running, right? Like if running is what gets you in the door, awesome. I am not here to judge it. As long as you do, in fact, move through that threshold and use this opportunity to radically transform your life, that's kind of the the big ask <laughs> in this book, right? Is to come in through running, but to not leave it at running, right? Because if you're only ever plogging and recycling gel wrappers and issuing race t-shirts, while those things are great and meaningful and you should do them, we cannot leave it there. And the ask mm -hmm. of all, the ask of all of us to get where we need to go is great. And I think that we are ready for the challenge as runners. And I think that this was, re we just really wanted to activate folks that we know are ready to be moved to action, which is the running community, because we, as a, as a, you know, sort of a, a, a community are people who look at things in a way that I don't think other people are, right? Like we're used to toiling in obscurity for years and years and years for a goal that we may not ever reach. Um, we're used to working together to push each other to go further. And we're used to working um, alone when no one else can see us. And we have to just depend on our own values to get us to where we need to go. And I think that, yeah, again, we wanted to, you know, again, access people through that entryway of running. Like, yes, like you, you see the wildfire smoke. Like I, I have asthma, so this hits very close to home for me because I can't exercise outdoors if the air quality isn't, uh, isn't good. And hey, if that's what gets people in the door, I'm all about it. As long as we don't leave it just at the running, then I'm happy. So let's talk about ways. Let's start individually and we'll move up in scale. I want to talk about things that we can concretely do as individuals. Let's start with runners, right? Ways that we might be able to make some changes in how we use, approach, consume things around our running. I want to ask Tina about some of the changes that you've seen races start to make at the, that larger level. I want to hear about what Chicago's doing. And then also I want to talk about kind of broadly organizations or initiatives that you've seen that you feel like are moving the needle or doing the work uh, on a larger scale that people might be able to then get connected with those organizations or initiatives and feel like they're also a part of something greater. So let's start with us as individuals. Um, what are some things that we as individual runners can do to start to make those small steps towards climate justice, reducing our consumption, those types of things? Yeah, and I think this is an important way to look at it, to, to start small, what we can do ourselves um, to work our way up. And and yeah, as I said, as you said, look at the, the bigger 
the bigger players in the game and what they are doing. So um, individually, I mean, I mentioned earlier about the about the T-shirts. There's a lot of really cool uh, nonprofits and groups now that do like planting a tree instead of taking a T-shirt. And so um, a really small step that a runner could take is, yeah, emailing a race director and saying, hey, can have you thought about partnering with one of these organizations? And that gives people a way of, of starting that curiosity around um, what can I do as an individual um, and, uh, and and just being conscious, doing your, your research in brands. Um, that said, I uh, we talked about this a lot in the book. It is intentionally very confusing. There's a lot of brands that are, and companies, corporations that are doing so much damage, but they're putting like a cow on their website in a grass field, or they might be putting the words eco this, um, and they're saying we're hundred percent carbon neutral and they're confusing everyone with, with terms. So we, I want to recognize that even as individuals, it is confusing. And we give some advice in the book of how to kind of work your way through that. But, um, but yes, uh, you know, we recognize. Sorry, I just wanted, still- so I think that the term for this is, um, sorry, say the term for this is greenwashing, yes. right? It's when companies greenwash. Uh, and, and if you kind of want to explain what that is, cause I think people, once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> I think I always want to push people to be really skeptical of quote unquote market-based solutions because the market is a big part of what got us here and we cannot consume our way out of this. So anytime you can see a company who's maybe trying to let you and you off the hook for continuing to consume at the same rate and in the same way that you always have been, um, because now they're now it's in like more easily recycled packaging or it's yeah, I think that, you know, always be skeptical when you can tell a company is trying to let you displace guilt over consumption because there is no ethical consumption in our current system and we need to work to change the system and a lot of times companies will kind of displace their own guilt and culpability onto the consumer um and i think that i would just always be very very wary of any attempts to make you feel okay about consuming again i understand we have to consume uh that under this current system um but while we have to continue to move through the system we should all be very very invested in changing it so that we can consume and we can live in a way that's more in line with our environmental and our justice values down down the road but i think that greenwashing is kind of a way that corporations are putting on the the vestiture of environmental justice without actually engaging on these issues so rather than you know finding the you know the t-shirt that like plants a tree i think the better solution is to not get the t-shirt to not you know consume at the same rate that we want to consume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can be challenging sometimes. For me personally, I'm thinking like, well, I mean, I guess like I, I could make my own gels, but like it's so convenient when they come in those little packages. But I know, Tina, one of the things I loved is you posted, you know, you, there are starting to be ways that we can change how we consume and recycle those types of things which may have gone in the trash previously um and for me you know is it perfect no is it a step in the right direction i think it is Mm. i think a lot of it is is i mean more so with the the gel recycling i mean who knows how much of those are even getting recycled same with our general recycling cycling uh five percent of plastic gets recycled that is it so if we are honest with ourselves and think about all that plastic that we're putting into the recycling bin, what are the chances that that 5% is from us? 
I would say that's pretty small. Um, however, um, that allows us to kind of say, well, I'm doing something. So I do want to just mention that point that like those can be easy wins, but are actually in many ways more damaging because it allows us to kind of get ourselves off the hook. Um, however, with what you mentioned about the, um, the, the gel wrappers, that I would say is more of like a consciousness thing of where people will say, okay, I've got these gel wrappers. I want to do something responsible with them. I want to be conscious with them. So even if they're not getting recycled, you are now thinking, okay, what else can I do in my life? Well, I need to take a sandwich with me uh, on my run today, or I need to take a, a, a lunch with me. Well, maybe I could um, reuse that bag that I got, that my bread came in to put my sandwich in instead of using a Ziploc bag. Or maybe I could... Um, you know, uh, with my shoes. Okay, well, now I'm done with my shoes. What should I do with those? Now, these systems aren't going to be perfect, uh, the ones that are in place right now because of the world that we live in, but it's more that it gets you to start questioning things in your life. And like, again, what Zoe mentioned about consumption, you might then start to think, okay, do I actually need this? Um, and one thing I like to encourage people to do is think of the end of life. Everything you buy, think about where that is going. If you are buying a happy new year 2024 headband that is used for literally a few hours that is going to then sit in a landfill because what how could you possibly reuse that for something um and so just considering the choices that you are making and where that is going afterwards so i think even if a lot of these solutions that come up aren't doing any change and then in emissions they're at least making you start to consider what you can do differently and how you can change your lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know it's that's not the answer people want to hear, um, but I would say it's it's planting those seeds in our heads that we need to make change because we do as individuals, even if the the biggest emission changes are going to come from the top. I want to ask about this because. There is always the person who comes in with that slippery slope argument and says, well, it sounds like what you're asking me to do is essentially become somebody who, like, you know, lives off solar power and braids my own sandals and never, ever, ever consumes anything that I didn't make or grow myself. And, like, I can't imagine that, that that's the argument that you're making, right? It's not what we're trying to say here. That is not at all realistic mm -hmm. or reasonable to ask anybody to do. If that's what you want to do, great. But, like... When you're, when you're saying like, hey, maybe don't use a new Ziploc, use a bag you already have for your sandwich, some people will blow that way out of proportion. Uh, do you see that often when you bring up these types of things? Oh, heck yeah. Man, if I, oh, I could, the amount, if I had a dime for every time someone criticized me for flying to races, I could afford another ticket to Chamonix to race UTMB. And I often find that the people who are critiquing other people who are trying to act in good faith in a way that's in alignment with their environmental values, typically they um, have their, again, they have some sort of vested interest in preserving the status quo. For a long time, the environmental movement has unfortunately been kind of pockmarked by folks who are gatekeeping other folks' access to um, being able to engage on these issues, right? Like if you can't afford an EV, then you don't get to be a good environmentalist. Uh, never mind looking into cobalt mining and how that impacts like your new vehicle purchase. Um, a lot of the times folks who are more interested in criticizing others are not interested in taking a good hard look at their own um, 
ways that they prop up these systems of power. And I think that our message is to for everyone to get comfortable navigating these imperfect systems imperfectly and to get very curious about changing these systems around them so that they can live in a way that's more in line with their environmental values. I think that a big message that I try to send is that you should always be really skeptical of environmental action that necessitate a certain level of like, um, like economic attainment or like cultural power attainment. Um, and you sh we should all be working to lower barriers to entry if you are actually interested in getting more people on board, um, bringing more people into the conversation, more people into the movement. Because typically folks who are trying to keep people out, again, have some sort of like um, have some sort of like skin in the game in terms of preserving uh, the status mm -hmm. quo. And typically the folks who are criticizing others are not acting in good faith, it, unless it is like some sort of this like accountability of like um, a good faith accountability, which we all need, because again, these systems will require us to navigate them very, very imperfectly to change them from the inside out and from the bottom up, but we should also get interested in changing them from the top down. So um, I'm, you know, we've all gotten, I, or Tina and I have gotten very comfortable fielding that kind of pushback. But again, I find that it rarely comes from folks who are doing the work or who don't benefit from others not doing the work. I actually have a really good example of this that, that occurred for me last year, and it really just brought something home. And uh, I was flying, I can't remember where I was flying somewhere um, for to speak in a, at an event. Um, and I got upgraded to first class, which I never had before. And uh, I remember when I sat down, the person came up to me and was like, will you, shall you be dining with us today? And I was like, um, yeah, sure. I don't know what that means. But so then so then he proceeds to bring to put a tablecloth on my on my tray. He puts this um, China dish and uh, silverware, like actual knives and forks with me. He gives me a proper cup and I'm sitting there eating my I think it was like asparagus omelette or whatever it was. Um, and I'm seeing people from the back coming up to the front, going to use the restroom. I'm feeling incredibly awkward being that person eating my full meal. And um, I started thinking about the fact that, um, A, yes, people in first class are obviously using, that's a higher emission flight. You have more space, you have more resources. But then I started thinking about the fact that it would be very easy for people in that situation to say, you need to stop using plastic, single-use plastic, when you have your china and silverware sitting right there and delta is handing out plastic cups and individual single serve plastic uh, little packages to the people in the back and the people in the back are the ones being told why are you still using single use plastic you should be using your uh, you, you should be using reusable things but it's one thing to to be up the front and to be at those people who have the resources as zoe mentioned about like if you can't afford an ev um, but at the same time, that was such a jarring moment for me of like all the fingers are pointed at those individuals out the back when the airline didn't give them a choice or me typically a choice, whether you use a single use plastic or whether you have a cup or not. It just is the reality of our situation. So that for me was just such a good example of like um, where how we can all point fingers, but particularly those in power and privilege are able to point fingers at others knowing that they're not actually pointing any at themselves. So I want to ask then, going back to as we go from the individual level to the, you know, on, on up, you know, let's talk about 
changes that you have seen because uh, that races are making because again these these events which create thousands and thousands of pounds of waste seem like a place where yeah maybe we could make some change here what are the changes that you're starting to see in those large events those large races so I mentioned earlier that, yeah, I've been working with Chicago, who is definitely the gold standard um, in terms of what races are doing. And, and New York is also doing well, as well as a, a few others around the country. But uh, Chicago in particular is really determined to uh, make changes in, in a positive way as best they can for a race with 30,000 people. Um, and their Shamrock Shuffle is 25,000 people. Um, and so they have these huge races and it can be one thing for a trail race to be able to make changes when there's a hundred to a thousand people, it is a totally different thing for a race of that many people. And for me getting to see the amount of clothes that were thrown away on the start line last year at Chicago blew my mind. Like I'm talking, if we talk about like semi trucks, probably two semi full size semis worth of thrown away clothes from one race. That was just a very jarring moment for me. And you can, Yes, they can take those clothes and they can donate them. But if it's raining, those clothes are not going to be passed on. And so there's certain things that are very difficult to do. Um, however, the things that the races are doing that actually are providing the most impact are not necessarily the sexy things to be doing and the exciting things to be doing. Um, and so a lot of what Chicago is doing is minimizing the food waste. Um, and so that is about having very well marked, very well um stuffed because um the reality is unfortunately people are so hesitant to talk to people like zoe or i um that they would rather go way out of their way to avoid the sustainability or the zero waste tent than actually go up to us and be like here's my banana peel can you put it in the compost please or not even that it would be like us like hey come here come here we'll take your banana um <laughs> but a lot of what they're doing is diverting waste i mentioned about the amount of cups chicago's cups are compostable and quite a few races uh, major races around the us now are and those um cups can become uh, they break down within six months and become soil and that soil is distributed to community gardens along the Chicago Marathon route, which ties into what Zoe and I were talking about uh, within the community section as well, that it's not just about, um, you know, doing things on the day, but it's also what are you doing for these communities that are impacted by your event that you are trampling through, making them deal with all kinds of inconveniences because your race wants to go through there. Um, and so they're giving these community garden, uh, the soil back to the communities. They're also, uh, taking, uh, the heat sheets that people are given, because again, this is October in Chicago, um, the like aluminum foil things, and those can be turned into park benches that are then placed in those same community gardens. So they're doing a lot of things that are cyclical. Chicago also started this year, a 13.1 race that is in, uh, is it Garfield park, Garf yeah, I think it's Garfield park which is one of the um, areas of town that they've never done a race before. Uh, you know, uh, the average life expectancy in that community is 67. And so with, uh, you know, in the West Loop, it being 85. Um, and so they are involving that community, bringing them in, showing them running, allowing them to be part of the planning process. And so a lot of the solutions that the races are doing are not necessarily exciting things, but they are things that are community focused, they are ways that runners can contribute and still have, as you mentioned, I don't want to slow down my race. Um, so I still want my, my cup handed to me. 
Um, so they're trying to find ways to constantly improve, um, but it, it is going to take time and um, a lot of resources, a lot of preparation. I mean, um, there's a lot of people that work on the sustainability team on that weekend and uh, it's going to take time to really start to see the impacts as a, as a whole. That's such a good illustration of that interconnectedness, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it, that it, it, that's so cool. I ran Chicago last year, and uh, makes me makes me feel it makes me feel good to have been part of a race that is actively trying to make changes while still trying to uh, preserve the the experience of the race as best they can. Um, I know that we are starting to wrap up here, and so Zoe wanted to ask you, kind of, as we go to that that top level, our our inverted pyramid, if you will, individual to to broader organizations. Um, are there any initiatives, organizations, things that you are excited about, or uh, conversely, things where you're like, this actively needs to change? Uh, and we this this is going to be a big barrier for us as we move forward. So well, however you want to take it, the pro or the con. Yeah. Um, well, I uh, I think it's all a pro, right? Uh, we all need to um, move towards something, not away from. I think in most cases. And I think that my sort of um, challenge to everyone would be like again, like if we get you in the front door through running, amazing. We cannot leave it exclusively at running. Like your only like action cannot be you know. Uh, eschewing the race t-shirt and like making your gels by hand. I don't, I don't make my gels by hand, by hand. I, I, I'm a gel fan. Um, and I want to get people to say like, yes, like maybe I'm engaged on this issue because I'm a runner and I understand it on that kind of visceral level, but I'm going to be moved to greater action. I'm going to challenge myself to, um, go that next step and to get involved in policy, um, to get involved in activation and organization, whatever your kind of like, whatever, maybe your growth edge in this area is because we all need to come together to, as individuals to recreate and reimagine these systems, right? And what better community to radically reimagine the world we live in than the community of runners. And I think that that would just kind of be my final um, challenge to all of us to like, yes, like I, I'm going to bring my identity as a runner to the table, but I am going to challenge myself to um, embrace a much more all encompassing identity as uh, someone who loves to you know move on my own two feet outside and to say like yes if if this is where I start how far can I take this and I would just be really curious to see as a community if we came together what large-scale changes we would be able to enact um and the organization I would like to plug here that I am uh Tina and I are both a part of is uh runners for public lands which kind of uh again activates folks around their identity as runners and tries to move them towards causes of environmental justice in a much more all-encompassing way. So for folks who are interested in um, getting involved on the local level, um, get in touch with runners for public lands. We're working on seeding out local chapters across the U.S. So um, yeah, runners for public lands. 
Tina and Zoe, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being here and engaging this conversation. I will say, I mean, if somebody's made it all the way to the end of this episode, and I've said this before in other conversations that I've had around sensitive and difficult topics, is that, you know, there may have been something that you heard today that made you feel angry or frustrated or like, what the hell are they talking about? That's total BS, you know? And I think as as we are taking away this conversation, if that's how you felt about anything that I or either of my guests said today, like, maybe it's... Uh, something you should poke at and kind of explore about why it made you uncomfortable because hey you know what there's stuff that we talked about in this conversation where I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable and and I'm leaning into that right um Zoe I'm glad you still use gels because so do I right there we always say it's it's we're not asking you to make wholesale life changes and, and go live in the woods as a hermit but being starting with that awareness right starting the awareness of how we move and interact and consume in the world and how we might be able to change how we do that for the better so zoe and tina thank you so much the book is becoming a sustainable runner uh anything else you want to say in our wrap-up before we say goodbye to our listeners today i well i just would love to say um i would just love to say that yeah as you as you mentioned some of these things may make you uncomfortable um but as you mentioned elizabeth being curious about why that is about um what about your history your what is it about what fear is is that poking in you um and then and then with that like um recognizing that once you start taking action that like feeling in the pit of your stomach that we all feel on a daily basis every time we see that there is another weather system coming every time we see some trash on the side of the road every time we see um, some news article that says the world is on fire once you start taking action you will feel an immense weight lifted that you are actually doing something not just like pretending that feeling isn't there Um, and so no matter what that first step is for you um just doing something towards, as Zoe mentioned, like collectively organizing, whatever that looks like for you, um, is going to help you with that anxiety that we all feel. And that might include just saying to some of your best friends, like, honestly, I'm really scared about our future of this world. Like, are we going to be okay? Maybe even just talking about it is that first step for you with someone you care about and getting some of that anxiety out of your body so that would be what I would close with and I don't think I could have said it better myself thank you both for being here today I appreciate your time thank you thank you so much I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.